James chapter 5. William Randolph Hearst was a very famous and very wealthy newspaper publisher who died in 1951. He loved collecting art. Uh, and as the story goes, he heard about a certain artwork and just felt like he had to have it. He, he needed it in his collection, so he sent his agent out to go find it. And he searched for a couple months, and his agent came back, and he had found it. He told Mr. Hurst that he located the artwork. And when Hurst asked his agent where he found it, the agent said, in one of your warehouses, still in a crate. Hurst was so greedy and so bent on hoarding up more treasures that he didn't even realize or appreciate what he already had. The Bible warns us in multiple places about wealth. Not warnings against having wealth. Not warnings against money or making money, but warnings against loving money and hoarding money and trusting money. Warnings against greed and covetousness and advice and wisdom on how wealth should be viewed and how it should be used. In the Old Testament, King Solomon wrote, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And I love that Solomon just stopped right there. He didn't put a price on the income. If you love money and love wealth, it doesn't matter what your income is. You won't be satisfied. Paul said the love of money is the root of all evil. He said, which while some coveted after... They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And Jesus Christ famously said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. James has already dealt with this issue briefly in chapter 1 when he commanded those rich in this world to rejoice not in their riches, but to rejoice that they were brought low to come to Christ, rejoice in their humility. So we've seen this touched on in James before. Now he's going to go a lot deeper. Of all the warnings and of all the indictments in the New Testament against uh, greed, against amassing and hoarding wealth rather than being generous with it, our text this morning is one of, if not the strongest in all of the New Testament. And we're pretty used to James's bluntness now. We're pretty used to him being harsh, but this is harsh even for James. He is, these are some strong words James lays against certain rich people. One commentator even says, one would have to go back to the Old Testament prophets' condemnations for comparable judgments against the wealthy. So he has this ring of an Old Testament fire and brimstone, so to speak, prophet in these verses that we're going to see this morning. There are harsh words of judgment for those who are greedy, selfish hoarders as opposed to generous, selfless stewards. And let's pray that these words can never be said of us individually or as a church. And let's heed James's warning about wealth this morning. Look at verses 1 through 6. In James 5, he says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, 
and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. In the first three verses, James strongly condemns the rich, but it's not for being rich. We'll see that. But he begins with this same phrase we saw last week at the end of chapter 4, this go-to now. That just means pay attention, listen up. It was James capturing their attention and kind of setting this apart. But it still fits perfectly with where he placed it in the letter, even though you could take it as its own unit here. Because think about this with me. What did he just rebuke these businessmen for at the end of chapter 4? Well, essentially, it's for not trusting their future to God. It's not involving God, God's will in their business planning. And so for that lack of trust, they were rebuked. And now, James rebukes wealthy people who are essentially guilty of the same sin. It just manifests itself in a different way. For the business people at the end of chapter 4... Their lack of trust in God was manifest by the prophetic arrogance with which they uh, spoke about the future, with their presumption that they would even have a future, much less their business plans, but even in their lives. And so now for these rich people, they also lack trust in God, but it's demonstrated through their greed, through their dishonesty, and through their selfish hoarding of wealth instead of trusting in God. And we'll see the greed and we'll see the dishonesty as we go through the verses. But, but for now, who is James talking to? I mean, who are these rich people? Some commentators suggest that these are lost people. That these are people outside of, of the church here. That um, they are lost rich people who have maybe mistreated believers. And so again, James' rebuke is much like that Old Testament prophet maybe talking to a Gentile nation. Remember, prophets in the Old Testament weren't always talking to Israel or Judah. Sometimes they gave prophecies to other nations and other people as well. So maybe that's what we're looking at here. Other commentators suggest these are rich Christians who had fallen into the trap of loving and hoarding and trusting money. And there are really good points to, me be, to be made in favor of both directions. But I don't know that we really have to say that it's only one or only the other. Now, there may be a little bit different application for a lost person in judgment than for a saved person in judgment, of course. But whether a person is lost or saved, the rebuke here is the same. If you greedily hoard up riches through dishonest means especially, judgment is coming. And so James rather emphatically urges them in verse 1 to weep and howl. This is really similar to the language he used in the middle of chapter 4 when he was trying to uh, demonstrate to these Christians how important repentance was and how they needed to be sorrowful over their sins and, and actually mourn for this. And he called them then to repent. Well, here he doesn't call for outright repentance. There's sorrow, there's weeping and, and, and howling, but notice it's not the sorrow of repentance, it's the sorrow of miseries. 
He says, weep and howl for the miseries that shall come upon you. Miseries just simply means hardships or afflictions or distress. And we might think, what, what hardships? I mean, what miseries? These people are wealthy. They have an abundance. They have an excess of everything. Yeah, but what if they didn't? What if their wealth was destroyed? What if their wealth was meaningless? And if you think, ah, that would never happen. It will someday. James is ultimately pointing, pointing to God's judgment as he begins to paint this picture of their future. And basically, James tells them that all wealth, all worldly wealth will one day be worthless. And he, he mentions specifically three major forms of wealth in the ancient world. Notice in verse 2, first he says, your riches are corrupted. The word riches can be a very generic term just for wealth. But here it probably refers to food and stored goods like that. And the reason for that is that it's coupled with this word corrupted. The word corrupted there specifically means to rot or to decay, specifically talking about um, organic matter. One, one measure of wealth in the ancient world was how much food you had stored up. We saw that in ancient Egypt, right, with Pharaoh's dreams and Joseph and they had to store up food, made them wealthy, because they also knew that seven years of famine were coming after the seven good years. And as Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt and they have a lot of food, what happens to Pharaoh's house? Pharaoh's house gets rich because he has this abundance of food during the famine. There's a parable that Jesus told about a rich man who had this great harvest. And so what did he do? He built bigger barns. He built bigger barns to, to store this wealth to store this food. And so people did sometimes hoard up wealth in the ancient world through an abundance of food. And James says, oh, that's going to rot. That's going to decay. And secondly, he, he mentions their garments. He says, your garments are moth-eaten. Another common form of wealth in the ancient world was, was clothing. We see sometimes in the Old Testament where people would send um, a certain number of of garments or of clothings to, to somebody as payment for something or as a, an apology for something or just whatever it may be. Um, but it wasn't always the amount of clothing. Sometimes it was the, the type of clothing. There were very wealthy people in this ancient world who would wear long robes that were very richly decorated and embroidered, and it was a sign of wealth. It was one of those, whoa, if he's wearing that, he's got money. Maybe, maybe it's the rich guy in chapter 2 that came into the assembly and they said, now that guy's rich. We need to treat him right. There was no doubt about it. And these, these special garments were even passed down throughout families as a generational sign of wealth. But in those days when they stored garments, they were frequently damaged by the larvae of moths. Well, once they were moth-eaten, they're essentially worthless. That's what James says is going to happen to their garments. And then finally, in the first part of verse 3, he mentions gold and silver. He says, your gold and silver is cankered. Still in today's world, this is a common form of wealth, right? We could maybe just generically say money, but also just precious metals. People invest in gold and silver and things like that. And they did so in the ancient world as well. Technically speaking, gold and silver don't rust but silver can become tarnished and gold can 
uh, become corroded and kind of lose its luster. And so that's the idea of cankered here. It means tarnished or corroded to the point that these precious metals have lost their value. They, they've lost the, the very thing people like them for. And so James mentions these three major forms of wealth, and he says they'll all be worthless. Rotten, moth-eaten, corroded. And even though it might not have happened just yet in the lives of these rich people, James words this like it already had. He words it like it's already come to pass to show the certainty of it. And this is really, really fascinating when we think back to chapter 4 and those businessmen. Remember how James rebuked the businessmen for their certainty of the future, even though they really weren't certain of the future? But now James is certain about the future of riches. There is no doubt in his mind of what the future holds for stacks and stacks of cash. It'll be worthless. Sometimes that happens quickly. Sometimes we see it happen in this life. Sometimes selfish, greedy people, um, we, we see disaster and misery and affliction come upon them in this life where their wealth ends up being worthless. But if it doesn't happen in this life, in the day of God's judgment, all forms of worldly wealth will be utterly and completely worthless. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are when you stand in front of God. You can't buy your way at a judgment. You don't get to stand on your wallet when you're kneeling before His throne. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters when you stand before God is faith in Jesus Christ. That's worth more than all the money in the world. If you don't know Him as Savior, you're destined for an eternity in hell. You can't beg your way out. You can't buy your way out. It's a condemnation for unbelief. Only through believing in Christ can a sinner be delivered. For these rich people, notice what James says is going to testify against them in the day of judgment. Look in the middle of verse 3. It's not their wealth that's testifying against them. They're not rebuked for being wealthy. He says, the rust of them shall be a witness against you. I love that. It's the rust that's the witness, not the money. There's nothing wrong with money. Abraham was filthy rich. Job was filthy rich. And those are two of the, the most greatest God-pleasing men that the world's ever seen. And so in this courtroom, it's not money that's taking the stand. It's rust that's being called to the witness stand and being sworn in. And the word rust here is the same word James used in chapter 3 that, that described the deadly poison of our tongues. And it, it's a really, it's, a, it's an interesting word that can mean rust or venom or poison or corrosion. And so what James is saying is the corrosion of your wealth is what's testifying against you. It confirms your heart, your attitude, your guilt. And you say, well, what does he mean by that? It proves their greed. Think about it this way. If you've got wealth that's lying around unneeded and unused for so long that it's corroded, why have you not given that away to help someone else? 
Be ye warmed and filled. Why did you selfishly hoard instead of selflessly help? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's going to give some advice and some commandments and encouragement about how we're to view wealth and riches in this life. Some preachers have a real tough time speaking to their congregations about wealth and, and things like that. And it's never been anything that's been a problem here because you are the most generous group of people that I have ever met. So as we go through this sermon and definitely collectively, this is no rebuke. I can't praise you enough for your generosity and I want to just encourage you to keep doing what you've been doing as a congregation. I think that you are following what Paul wrote. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 through 19. Chapter 6 verse 17 through 19 and Paul tells Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. If God blesses us with wealth, individually or as a church, don't be arrogant about it. Don't be high-minded about it. And don't trust in it. It's uncertain. Enjoy it as a gift from God. It is not wrong to enjoy God's blessings. Don't feel bad about enjoying something God has blessed you with. Do it with thankfulness. Do it with humility. Be thankful for it. But also, be generous. Be ready to share ready to help, storing up better rewards in a better place with treasures that will never corrode. The people that James was writing to, they weren't doing that at all. And God's judgment upon greedy unbelievers will not only consume their wealth, but will consume them. And if we, are, we as believers act this way, we're going to lose rewards for sure. God's judgment will still come upon us. It'll just be in a different form. We don't have to worry about losing our salvation, thank goodness. But we want to be good stewards of what God has given us. The end of verse 3 there back in James, James talks about this, this rust and this just consuming their flesh as it were fire. And he says, "Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. When judgment comes, all hoarding will be shown to be foolish. I like that James specifically mentions the idea of the last days here. When we think of the last days, the New Testament pretty much classifies everything from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to whenever Jesus returns as the last days. So just think about this. If James could use that phrase for his readers, and we're about 2,000 years removed from that, I think it's okay for us to use that term now. I don't know when Christ will return, but I know He will. And I know we're much closer now than it was when James wrote. And when Christ returns, all earthly wealth will be meaningless. 
And since his return is certain, and since it's getting closer, why would we selfishly hoard up treasures here on earth? So is this for saved people or is this for lost people? Sure. But if anyone understands the idea of Christ's return and how that should motivate us to live differently, it should be believers. But we know we're not immune to greedy tendencies. But none of it will be worth it when Christ comes back. Look at verse 4 through 6 again. James is going to charge these rich people with more specific sins. Not only are they greedy hoarders, but now they're, we, we learn they're dishonest cheats. Look at verse 4. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. One of the sins these rich people were guilty of were not paying their workers. One just cultural practice of the time, rich men that owned lots of land, they needed workers to come and harvest their fields during harvest time. They needed these, we call them day workers or day laborers. And the, the rich man would hire them and say, I'll pay you X amount for this amount of work. But these rich men, when you know the whistle blew at 7 o'clock, 5 o'clock or whenever it was, and everybody lined up for their check, these rich men wouldn't pay. And they defrauded their workers. That's dishonest. That's stealing. That's cheating. And the Old Testament Leviticus has very specific laws about paying workers, paying them what they're due and when they're due. Listen, God is very serious about just and ethical business practices. So however that may apply to you, in your life, in your purchases, in your payroll, in your work, whatever it may be, be honest. Because God knows. And God takes it very seriously. And so just like the rust of their wealth would testify against them, James now says, another thing that's crying out against you are the cries of these workers you've defrauded by refusing to pay them what you owed them. And James says, God hears that. And he uses a very strong title for God, very familiar to the Old Testament. At the end of verse 4, he calls God the Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth is transliterated from a Hebrew word that means hosts. So some of you may even just have Lord of hosts in your English translation. And that's what it means here. It teaches God's power and emphasizes his control, not just over the world, but his commanding power over the hosts of heaven. This phrase is only used twice in the entire New Testament, and this is one of them. We see it a lot in the Old Testament, Lord of hosts, only twice in the New Testament. And so for these, for these Jewish Christians who were familiar with the Old Testament, they knew this title for God, and it would have grabbed them as they thought about the very God who's the commander of all the armies of heaven. And now James is saying that that very God hears the cries of social injustice and dishonesty. And if these rich men thought that they were getting away with it because they were able to hoard up their wealth, think again. God knows. The God of heavenly armies knows 
and you won't get away with it. They may think they'll get away with it. It may look like they're getting away with it. But God knows, and if judgment doesn't come in this life, it will when Christ returns. Verse 5 is pretty interesting. Instead of getting away with it, according to verse 5, what they were actually doing was just fattening themselves up for judgment. Look at verse 5. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Living these lives filled with self-indulgent pleasure above everything else, including God. Yes, it was sinful. But James kind of ironically uh, likens it to a cow that is fed a lot so that he can fatten up for the slaughter. Some of you even have a translation that says fattened instead of nourished. That's the idea here. So, sure, you had a self-indulgent, pleasure-craving lifestyle, and you may have quite literally fattened yourself up. Weight used to be a sign of wealth because it meant you had food. These people may have quite literally fattened themselves up, but James says what you were actually doing was fattening yourself up like a cow led to the slaughter. We would just say they're ripe for judgment. And so James offers one final condemnation at the first part of verse 6. And we'll look at the last part of verse 6 more next week. But he says, you have condemned and killed the just. This could be taken literally or, or figuratively. Some that take it literally, they mention how certain rich Jewish men used their wealth to influence judges during the first century. It's just a bribe to get a, a verdict that they wanted. It might have meant a just man suffering, maybe even his life, but they didn't care. As long as it benefited them, it didn't matter. And others take it less literal that it's not necessarily bribery and murder they're committing, but that injustice is as violent as murder. And that could be, that could be true as well. There's a Jewish scribe who wrote in the second century B.C. Uh, that's really telling when we we've put it into this context. This Jewish scribe said, As one that slayeth his neighbor is he that taketh away his living. And as a shedder of blood, is he that deprives a hireling of his hire. So at least to some Jews, they viewed depriving a man of his wages on the same level as murder. If you really think about it, it makes sense. Because how is the man supposed to live and survive if he is not given what he is owed? And that fits the context here perfectly of these men defrauding their workers. So maybe they're literally, figurative, uh, literally guilty of murder, some, sure. Figuratively guilty of murder because of their dishonesty and, and refusal to pay. All of this terrible sin that affected others because of their own self-indulgent greed. They didn't care if they hurt others as long as it benefited themselves. Isn't that really the epitome of greed? These are some harsh words even for James. God does not bless us with wealth in this life so that we can hoard it up like greedy misers. We don't ever want to be like Mr. Hirsch, the newspaper paper publisher and art collector who wanted so much more that he didn't even realize what he already had. He wasn't even thankful for what he already 
uh, had acquired. Didn't even realize he had it. We don't need to be like that. We need to know not only what God has given us and be thankful for it, but be ready to share it. We do need to know this. This needs to be said. You don't have to be wealthy to be greedy. Some of the most greediest people in the world are the poorest people in the world. And some of the wealthiest are the most generous. It's a matter of the heart. With whatever you have, however much it is, God blesses us with that so that we can enjoy it and so that we can be generous, sharing and caring and helping others. Charles Spurgeon likened riches to manure. He said it does no good until it's spread around and a big pile of it stinks. I love that. I wish I'd have came up with that myself. And if we tie this back into the end of chapter 4 and these businessmen who, who plan their future, it's not wrong to plan. It's not wrong to save. James isn't condemning you if you have a 401k or if you have a savings account. That's not what James is saying here. But how do you view that? How do you use that? Use your wealth, however much that is, with God involved. Asking for His will, asking for His help, asking for His wisdom, and know that it is wrong to have dusty money. Give wealth away before it corrodes. Spread it around and help fertilize others. It's much better to give things away and help others and let God reward you on Judgment Day than for the rust and dust of your hoarded wealth to testify against you and your greed. I think we can apply that not only individually but to a church as well. And once again, you're the most generous group of people I've ever met. And so take this as an encouragement. Brother John and I have talked multiple times about this. And he's sick this morning, so he can't dispute it. He's not here. So. He said, I don't ever want to be the treasurer of a church that's sitting on a million dollars. And I said, I don't ever want to be the pastor of a church sitting on a million dollars. What would be the point of that? So I want to commend you for your generosity as a church. God has blessed us so much. And you're not hoarding up those blessings selfishly or greedily. You help other people. You support missionaries. You support mission work. You give to worthy causes. You invest in people. You help other churches. So many other things. I didn't plan this sermon to be the day that I was going to tell Connor what you guys did for him in sending him to Israel, but it's just a perfect example of your generosity. Don't let your money get dusty, and let's definitely not let God's money get dusty. Why would we be greedy? Why would we hoard things that God has given us when he wasn't greedy and gave us everything he had? We need to be thankful that our Savior didn't selfishly look around at glory at everything he had and keep it to himself. With all his glory, with all his status, with all his wealth, he took on the form of a servant and came to this earth and died for you so that you could share in his glory and his status and his wealth. If Christ is willing to share everything that's rightfully His, why in the world would we be selfish to share what God's given us?
when we stand before God, worldly wealth will not matter. Poverty will not matter. The only thing that will matter is faith in Christ. That's it. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, that's my prayer for you and that's this church's prayer for you. If that's something you need to talk about, let me know. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the letter of James. Help us as we continue to finish through this study to take it and apply it to our lives. Thank you for our blessings, Lord. Help us to enjoy those thankfully, humbly, and help us to be ready to share with others uh, and to spread your word and your goodness and your love. Uh, Lord, thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.